welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Jeffrey R. Baker, Clinical Professor of Law and Assistant Dean of Clinical Education and Global Programs at Pepperdine University Caruso School of Law, and Allison McKinney-Tim, Founder and Executive Director of Justice Revival. We will discuss their article, Zero Tolerance, the Trump administration's human rights violations against migrants on the southern border, which will be published in the Drexel Law Review. So welcome to the show, Jeff and Allie. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. Um, I found this a really interesting and frankly, rather troubling article to read um, with a lot of really kind of shocking observations, frankly. Um, But for listeners who might not be familiar with the Trump administration's immigration policies, even though, frankly, we've been hearing a lot about them uh, in recent recent years, I wonder if you could start by just saying sort of what the Trump administration has done when it comes to immigration on the United States' southern border and how it's changed immigration policy. That is a tremendously broad question, um, and uh, the Trump administration has adopted, um, frankly, some some radical approaches, and and I even think is is rather proud of some of those radical approaches. Um, and you know, this is this was a capstone of Trump's uh, President Trump's campaign uh, was to was to slow down and stop and eventually eliminate. Um, what he considers illegal immigration. Some people would say immigration generally, um, especially targeted at particular um, populations. Uh, so there were a multitude. I mean, we, we remember at the very beginning of his administration, the Muslim travel ban. Um, but even that, even the way that I framed that is, is controversial. Executive orders limiting uh, travel from certain countries uh, based on certain characteristics. Um, and uh, it, it's been a long and, and varied process. Um, with just a ton of responses from lawyers, journalists, activists uh, at many, many fronts. Our paper focuses on a particular uh, uh, policy that uh, President Trump, um, supported by Attorney General Sessions um, and Homeland Security uh, Secretary Nielsen, enacted called Zero Tolerance. And Zero Tolerance is the idea that um, they will, they, I mean, the U.S. government, the U.S. government will prosecute uh, for a crime every single person who crosses the border uh, illegally without documentation. And that uh, meant that uh, they were going to, they, again, the U.S. government was going to detain every single person who crossed the border without documentation uh, in order to prosecute them and initiate uh, deportation proceedings. Uh, zero tolerance, meaning that they weren't going to let anybody go, that they were going to attempt to capture 100% of everyone who crossed the border without documentation and then process them criminally and civilly uh, and deport them as quickly as possible. And this stands in contrast to every other president before um, who has exercised some prosecutorial discretion to not do that, uh, to allow people to uh, be detained, be processed, and then released uh, on their own recognizance or uh, with a date to come back to um, to, to immigration court or an asylum proceeding so that they could uh, plead their case and, and try to stay or be deported. Instead, uh, Trump and Sessions decided 
that they wanted to create a, a massive deterrence by detaining every single person and then processing them criminally. Now, the 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 huge problem with that is the government, the U.S. government, just frankly had no capacity to handle the numbers uh, and the complexity of uh, units and people and families of all ages uh, who were crossing the border. And zero tolerance meant that everyone was going to be detained. Um, but there are, and we can discuss this in some more detail as we go, there are some standing uh, United States laws and uh a particular court uh, order that's been around for a long, long time called the, which we'll call the Flores Agreement. Flores says you can only hold children in a certain situation. So there were there was a cascade of consequences from zero tolerance, and and two of those profound situations is what we focused on the in the paper uh, are child detention and family separation. In order to detain children. Uh, they could only be detained in certain circumstances. Those circumstances, uh, the Trump administration violated repeatedly anyway, but the result was that children had to be separated from their families and processed and prosecuted separately. Um, So there were thousands and thousands of uh, children who were separated from the adults with whom they crossed the border, often family, and uh, without any process, without any way to track who belonged to whom. And uh, families were detained and separated from each other, and children were detained and separated from each other. So among the various and sundry ways that Trump administration has tried to confront um, immigration issues, we focus on zero tolerance and specifically the consequences of child detention and family separation, uh, and then, and then uh you know, approach that from a from a human rights perspective. Um, the numbers are are pretty well publicized. Uh, we can get into them, um, but it, it, it was thousands. Uh, children died. Uh, families were separated. Some. Um, it's hard to know exactly how many families were actually deported uh, without their children, creating what's effectively permanent orphans. Um, but it's uh, it's in the thousands, um, clearly. And actually, uh, Ali has some uh, more updated numbers. Uh, since we've since we've um, published or uh, submitted the paper, so um, Ali, catch us up on sort of uh, the numbers that that you that you've seen recently. Well, and and first, I'll just add onto that um, really comprehensive summary. The other problematic aspect of zero tolerance to begin with is that many of these people crossing over the U.S. Mexico border, of course, are asylum seekers. So people with claims that they are fleeing persecution and potentially life-threatening situations. And under international law, there is a right to seek and enjoy asylum from persecution and hence to be in a country irregularly if one is seeking asylum um, is not considered a wrongful or illegal act. And so the the pretense and the assumption of zero tolerance um, suggested a, a wrongdoing when there is none to be sure in the case of uh, asylum seekers. Um, and I'll mention that sort of as you, as you suggested, Jeff, it's, what's really shocking is that family separation and family detention is ongoing. So what we understand from recent reporting is that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, is asking detained parents now during this global pandemic 
to either agree to be separated from their children and to sign a statement to that effect in order for the children to be released or to um, concede to indefinite family detention. So those twin evils of keeping children in detention over the long term and or separating vulnerable migrant children from their families, those are still ongoing today. And um, in fact, as part of our advocacy at Justice Revival, we partner with the Interfaith Immigration Coalition. And um, we have a letter that we are working on presently that has a number of calls to action. Among them are prevent family separation and family detention. So when we talk about those issues uh, in this law review article, know that those are very much live issues uh, here today as we as we record this interview. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about the Flores Agreement and what it says in relation to family separation and child detention. In other words, prior to the Trump administration, how did the United States government generally understand its obligations in relation to immigrants, people seeking asylum, and specifically families and children seeking asylum in the United States? Um, the Flores Agreement uh – for our lawyers, uh, the the citation is Flores versus Reno. Uh, it was Central District of California in 1997. So Reno, there being Janet Reno, the Attorney General of the United States during the Clinton administration. So it's it's an it's an old order, um, and uh, it's a it's actually a stipulated settlement agreement between the United States and a and a person who was in detention. And uh, Flores. Um, what we now in shorthand called the Flores Agreement uh, provides it governs U.S. practices for detaining migrant children, uh, and it does a few things. Um, and once again, it's not it's not statutory and it's not regulatory. It's it's a court order and it's an it's an open case and it's perpetually monitored. It's currently in the jurisdiction of uh, Judge Dolly G in the Central District of California, and uh, and that that. Uh, order establishes certain parameters, um, a, a maximum time limit when st- where student uh, where uh, children can be detained in custody. Uh, they have to have access to health care. They have to have access to uh, to their families. They have to have certain notice provisions. Um, and it's actually pretty detailed. Uh, the Obama administration ran up against the Flores Agreement uh, when it had when it was confronting uh a, a so-called wave of unaccompanied minors, which meant children or people who were not adults, minors uh, coming across uh, the border without documentation, but also by themselves. And that was a different set of problems. Um, and the the problem there was not knowing to whom to entrust, you know, just a bunch of children, uh, thousands of children who were, who were at the border. In this case, uh, in the Trump administration, children are coming, or the issues that we're focused on are, are less about unaccompanied minors, but but minors who are coming across with their families. And Ali raises a good point. Um, the the Flores Agreement applies to children who are detained generally uh, with families or without families, and so detaining a child with their family. Uh, was the problem because uh, families wouldn't be processed quickly enough under the Trump administration's early rules. So they were being separated so that they could be processed more quickly than their parents or their families with whom they came. 
and they were then uh, shuffled out into the world um, or to other uh, into other facilities or into foster care, et cetera, uh, without their families, and then uh, very often permanently separated um, from their families. Uh, so that's what Flores looks like. Flores governs the process by which the U.S. government can detain children uh, and how long and under what circumstances they can keep their uh, children in detention. Well, so were the problems associated with the changes to immigration policy that the Trump administration has adopted, ones that were foreseeable uh, when those changes were implemented? And what response, if any, has the Trump administration had to the kinds of issues that have arisen since the adoption of these new policies. And it sounds like their tension with the legal obligations of the United States government. One thing we found that was particularly shocking um, as we did this research is that there were a number of statements by the administration that suggested an actual intent um, to use a family separation in order to deter undocumented persons from entering the U.S. And so when we talk about foreseeability, it's, it's beyond that. Um, there was also foreseeability because as we detail in the article, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights um, uh, bipartisan legislative, um, le- legislatively established commission found that um, experts had uh, informed the administration about the traumatic effects of family separation on vulnerable minors. So to the extent that um, anyone might not have foreseen that that taking a vulnerable child away from his or her parents would be harmful, that that was specifically um, detailed to them and the administration proceeded nonetheless. Uh, And so when you mentioned, Brian, kind of troubling, shocking observations in the article, this is part of what underlies, I think, some of the strong conclusions that Jeff and I reach, um, because we were not the first to suggest um, that this really um, begins to look like intention or even malice aforethought. And there I am quoting another official. You know, there's it is impossible to believe that if anyone were paying attention, that this was not foreseeable. Um, and I, I, uh, Ali is, is right. There's, there's solid indications that it was intentional. Uh, and, and there, the, the, the administration squirmed for a while about whether this was a deterrent or intended to be a deterrent or not. Um, because, uh, as we can see, if we once we start diving into sort of the, the jurisprudence and the theory of international law, um, in, intentionality and in using tactics as a deterrence is actually legally operable. I mean, it's an element of the violation. And there was an early attempt to say, well, this is just the natural, you know, consequence of us enforcing the law. We have to enforce the law. So this is just sort of what happened, and we we're sorry, but we have to interpret. We have to, um, you know, abide by the law. Um, it's not just us. I mean, U.S. courts, uh, every every central district court, uh, every district court and appellate court that looked at this um, during its height um, rejected the administration's capacity to do this and said that whatever they were doing was not a justification to violate Flor- Flores. 
and and many other laws. I mean, there we have uh, court findings that um, it violated Texas child welfare laws. I mean, it, it it was it was not something that was unforeseeable, and very likely later on we see um, that the administration uh, bailed on that justification, um, and there were. Because uh, there were high-level administration folks, including the president himself, who indicated um, with very little ambiguity that it was intended to inflict pain and hardship so that people wouldn't make the attempt. Um, And sometimes framed as a merciful way, like, well, we're making it so hard here so that people won't risk their lives trying. Um, But it was a brutal way to try to send that signal. Well, in the paper, you focus specifically on the obligations of the United States uh, to immigrants and specifically immigrants uh, seeking asylum under international law. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those obligations are, where they come from, and which ones are specifically relevant to the particular problems relating to family separation and child detention that you focus on in the paper. Of course, um, would be glad to talk about this. Um, so we really, the intent of the paper was to um, to chronicle the policies that um, Jeff's been describing. Um, so to amass a kind of clear narrative of the facts of how the policies had changed under the Trump administration, and then to map those policies um, against U.S. obligations under binding international human rights commitments. And so we focus primarily in the article on express commitments that um, are rooted in uh, U.S. treaty ratification. And so we look uh, across a number of rights violations, um, uh, some of which uh, have a basis in multiple treaties. So we talk first about the right to family life, and this is actually found in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And as many will know, that 1948 document is really the cornerstone of uh, human rights law. And then also in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which the U.S. is a state party to, um, it specifies a right to family life. Um, and um, uh, and so that's the first uh, right that we look at in the paper is the right to family life. Um, we also look at children's rights. And again, children's rights come up in the ICCPR, which I just mentioned, uh, a recognition that um, children have special vulnerabilities and that there's actually an expectation of special protection of their rights on the part of the state. Um, And then we go on to look at the right to be free from torture or cruel, degrading, or unusual treatment or punishment. So collectively, we call that ill treatment, the right to be free from ill treatment. And um, we can find that in the Convention Against Torture. Uh, Again, um, the U.S. being a state party to that convention. And so in In both of these cases, the the right to 
family life, children's rights, and then the right to be free of ill treatment, uh, there are just very clear obligations based on the U.S. being part of these treaties that prohibit the pattern of treatment that we named. So clearly, um, let's go one by one, in the, in the instance of the right to family life, that means the government was obliged to consider what the impact would be on family unity of its immigration policies. And uh, the committee that interprets the ICCPR, the Human Rights Committee, in its jurisprudence in looking at other cases, found that it's necessary for a government to consider on a case-by-case basis what would be the impact um, on family unity. And a lot of that case law is looking at deportation cases, but um, equally applicable to this scenario of how um, migrants are treated upon entering the country. And as the article details, Uh, There was not evidence of consideration of uh, family life to begin with. And so that just failing to even consider it and implementing blanket policies that wholesale lead to, again, intentional separation of families, that on its face fails to meet. Uh, the requirement um, that uh, this right to family unity um, can't be violated in an unlawful or arbitrary manner. Um, And then we could talk similarly about uh, children's rights. So again, um, keeping children, uh, separating them from families and keeping them in the the really highly questionable uh, conditions in which uh, children have been kept in migrant detention, um, that is problematic. Um, again, under the ICCPR and the provision it provides for children's rights. Uh, and then thirdly, I mentioned the right to be free from ill treatment. And that um, under the Convention Against Torture, and that ill treatment does not need to be torture as that word is understood in the vernacular. It can be physical or emotional conditions that are just um, not, um, that that just surpass any sort of uh, justifiable standard and that are essentially uh, inhumane, unconscionable, and kind of beyond the pale. And so if we look both at the physical conditions in which children were kept, and you see some of the statements in the article that really stand out, conditions being worse than what detainees face at Guantanamo Bay, worse than what one legislator had seen in post-earthquake Port-au-Prince, Haiti, um, that makes clear that the conditions themselves ran afoul of uh, the standards there in the jurisprudence of that, um, that treaty body that oversees implementation of the Convention Against Torture. So the conditions themselves, but then, of course, the separation from parents and the trauma that 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 entailed, both of those um, can be understood as violating that right to be free from ill treatment. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add just a couple of things because, um, I mean, Ali is uh, far is, is our 
between the two of us, our, our resident expert, and and she has taught me so much about um, international law and about the interaction and relationship of these binding o- obligations that we have um, as uh, as the United States. I, I want to point out two things that are perhaps a little bit in the weeds. Um, a government um, is not completely banned from separating uh, a child from from family members uh, at a border. But it can't do it in an arbitrary way. Um, and you know, for this, if there's a finding of the best interest of the child, if the child is being trafficked, if the child is being abused, if there's real a legitimate question about parentage um, or custody, there there can be a best interest standards can apply, and the state uh, can uh, separate uh, children, maybe put, perhaps even detain children and detain families uh, under under certain circumstances. But the um, but the sta- the 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 treaties, the conventions, the law, uh, as we would expect, says that one cannot do that arbitrarily. Uh, one cannot do it on a wholesale basis, as Ali just said, and one cannot do it without process on the front end and the back end. So in order for a, a state to do that, there has to be some kind of adjudication, some kind of finding, some sort of process, uh, some sort of standard of evidence that says that uh, the state is acting in the best interest of a child and whatever these circumstances are. That just did not happen uh, for years. Um, at the height of this, from the outset in early 2017, but then following the executive orders in April 2018, uh, this was just de rigueur. Uh, the the U.S. government was separating children just as a matter of fact as soon as they crossed the border, um, and things were happening extraordinarily quickly. There were not individual findings happening for these kids, um, and they were being separated just by um, law enforcement officials by by um, by ICE agents, not by any sort of court, uh, and not with any sort of court order. Uh, it was mass separation, and that violates the treaty. Um, all of these treaties, but and there was no process on the back end either, because the government caught got caught out not keeping track of who belonged to whom. Uh, and in fact, one of its defenses later on in some litigation was that it is just going to be too burdensome for us to find out who these kids belong to, uh, that we uh, will have to dig back into our databases and we don't have the means to, to do this. The The courts uh, did not did not uh, accept that. <laughs> the courts did not say, well, you know, if it's too hard. And in fact, the, the courts uh, chided the government by saying, well, this is a problem of your own creation. Uh, at one point, um, the government said that it ought to be the ACLU's job to go back to the countries to, to where these family members had been deported to try to find them in order to connect them with the minor children who were still in the United States. And courts likewise said, Basically, you broke it and you bought it, and it's your it's your job, U.S. government, to go uh, track these people down and try to 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 you know bring these families back together. But in many cases, that was just literally impossible after the fact. So we're talking about thousands of kids separated from their families um, without a way to track them. So there was arbitrariness on the front end and continuing arbitrariness on the back end. Um, and and you know those are. Um, certain rights and certain procedures within these uh, conventions, but um, there's a there's a concept uh, in international law, um, and forgive me if my Mississippi accent kicks in, but it's uh, 
so, some of these rights are non-derogable. That means they cannot be uh, trumped by anything. Uh, and one of those uh, non-derogable rights is the right to be free from ill treatment, uh, torture, as Ali defined it, um, and the inhumane and cruel and degrading uh, circumstances of detention. And that is not something that uh, a court cannot find under these international laws a good reason to put someone in degrading, inhuman uh, uh, circumstances that that amount to ill treatment. And um, and our government did. Uh, and so uh, not only violating the principles, but but violating uh, some very clear uh, treasured virtues uh, of due process, too. I just wanted to add, so as Jeff explained there, uh, there is this principle that the best interests of the child shall be paramount. Um, and that has meant, and the, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, has said um, very directly that um, that means the best interest of the child is important in the face of the government's aims of immigration control. And specifically, um, the UN has said, uh, here I'm quoting, and this is this is from our, uh, our paper, that, quote, children should never be detained for reasons related to their own or their parents' migration status. Detention is never in the best interests of the child and always constitutes a human rights uh, violation. Um, and um, and that sort of hints at another point that we made in the paper that I think is important to pull out as a as an implication of the scenario we've seen, um, which is that there are other important human rights treaty commitments that the U.S. has not made. Most notably, the U.S. is not a party to the Convention on the Rights of the Child the most ratified human rights treaty the world over. Uh, the U.S. remains the single holdout. And so as we, as we talk about what are the implications of looking at all these human rights violations, I mean, we could, we could pull out a number, but I think that's one that's worth mentioning given the intense public moral outcry and the the shock of I think many in this nation over family separation, um, we can see not only did it violate commitments that the U.S. has made, but it also points to a very well agreed on commitment to put children's best interests first that every other nation has. Um, affirmed through joining the CRC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and that the U.S. has still not uh, accepted. And so perhaps that's one implication to think about carefully as we look at what's happened over the last three and a half years. Well, so you've touched on this a little bit in your in your most recent comments. Um, but I wonder if anyone has brought complaints specifically relying on these uh, concerns sounding in international law against the United States in relation to these policies? And if so, how the United States government has responded to those complaints, if at all? I have seen some advocates using international law as 
as as a as a secondary persuasive uh, source of law uh, against the United States government. I mean, uh, Ali alludes to this, um, especially as it relates to the to the rights of the child. I mean, the United States, um, you know, from all of its. Um, Oh, Brian, forgive me for a personal note, but didn't I see online that you just named your new pet Charming Betsy? <laughs> Indeed, yes. Okay, so so I mean, Charming Betsy is this old, old court case, and I'm not even going to brief it now, but it, it, it essentially gives the United States a, a, a wide berth uh, to to not um, to not think about these things uh, very closely when it comes to lawmaking and policymaking in, in domestic matters, and um, and so. It, largely, I think that the, these international commitments appear uh, as as secondary sources of persuasion. Uh, I have not seen the United States government uh, respond in any sort of substantive way to to this critique. Um, I, I, Ali knows much more, and and I hope will speak to sort of the ongoing UN review process, which which might get some traction. Um, I I will say personally, uh, I think looking at international. Well, I think we I think. Uh, we we overvalue sovereignty. That's probably a different uh, discussion when it comes to to global international human rights. Um, but uh, but I think we're looking at this as as another way to try to drive home the fact that this is just horribly immoral uh, and it shocks the conscience of the world. Uh, so I mean, there is certainly legal, um, very important legal. Um, Concerns that we that we must and, and and have to consider, especially since, I mean, in constitutional theory, at least these uh, these commitments ought to be the supreme law of the land, um, as we understand it and read it in the Constitution. Uh, but even more than that, it just sort of speaks to the fact that uh, the world um, articulates uh, some very important moral and virtuous principles that um, we just have straight up ignored. Um, yeah. And if I could add to that, I think part of um, what what Jeff and I did, and you see this especially in the introduction and conclusion, um, and something that I, I really enjoyed reflecting on and writing about was the question of how do we better enforce and uphold human rights commitments, given that um, the international enforcement mechanisms or oversight mechanisms at the UN operate obviously quite differently than um, if we were thinking about enforcement of laws in a domestic sense. I mean, there is oversight, there is accountability, there is feedback to the U.S. government from international experts. And yet at the end of the day, enforcement lies primarily with the nation state. So it's back in the U.S.'s court to live up to its human rights commitments or not. And um, I'll, I'll just... I'll just reference here because I think it's relevant. So, so our work at Justice Revival as a, a bit of a unique faith-based Christian identified but, but human rights specialist organization is to work to identify the broad common ground that we see between religious ethical commitments in the tradition we know best and the principles of international human rights law that are also um, uh, a, a, an important source of authority, moral, political, and yes, of course, legal. And so, um, as Jeff was saying, this this series of events has shocked the conscience of the nation, the treatment of migrant families, the treatment of vulnerable children. 
And what I saw through my work at Justice Revival was that it absolutely shocked and horrified many of the congregations and faith communities we know best and that we work closely with. And that really, um, in part, inspired um, our work to investigate this with um, great collaboration from uh, Jeff's uh, community justice clinic at Pepperdine and his students over the course of many semesters. And as we reflect in the article, um, part of what came out of this was realizing, well, at the end of the day, it, it is left really to democratic processes to insist that our leaders respect, protect, and promote human rights as they're legally obliged to do. And mm-hmm. um, and now I'm just speaking for myself at Justice Revival. I, I think, well, if we can really make a public case or a case to our constituents, uh, more specifically to say, look, this is not just a moral intuition that so many people share. This is a moral intuition that is well supported by a body of binding law and also, by the way, has been supported by the weight of global ecumenical opinion. Um, those moral arguments together, to my mind, make a very compelling case. And the hope is they could move more citizens in this democracy to expect that the government would uphold human rights and really to require with their votes that the government make good on those promises. Well, if I may, I mean, it seemed like the paper, among other things, was suggesting that a lot of these actions are sort of inconsistent with expectations of principles like natural law and kind of basic concepts of of justice. In, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on some of those observations or potentially those kinds of problems and how we ought to think about these kinds of government actions in relation to our expectation of what our government can and should do? Yeah, I I think absolutely. Um, Part of what we wanted to draw out was the idea that human rights is more than positive law because it draws on this broad, global, intercultural, interreligious consensus. We understand it to point toward some clear moral bottom lines that nations of the world have long agreed on and um, that are based on the idea that all people have a profound and equal human dignity and worth that must be respected in the form of regard for their basic human rights. And certainly when we talk about migrants in particular, the tradition um, in the, so the scriptures I know best, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament, the tradition for regard and care for the alien or the stranger is overwhelming. Um, a Hebrew Bible professor of mine at Yale Divinity School, right after Trump came into office, he just simply undertook to name all of the scriptures in in both the Hebrew Bible and Christian New Testament that said, welcome the stranger. And just the text of those scriptures alone was about seven single spaced pages. And many of them really don't need much interpretation. There are a lot of principles that we 
we glean from scripture only with a great deal of interpretation. This one is about as clear cut as it can possibly be. Um, and so um, I digress. Um, but but at the end of the day, yeah, absolutely. There are strong moral commitments to having regard, not only regard, but concern for the lives of those who are from other nations. And I think that really underscores what we mean when we say human rights, that these rights are universal, that they don't depend on membership in um, any group whatsoever, including membership in our nation. So it's it's very much um, antithetical to the ethos that uh, that this administration has put front and center. And you know this this may this may be just too sentimental and maudlin to to sound like a sophisticated law professor, but I mean the Declaration of Independence sounds in this as well. Um, uh, you know that that all men are created equal with inalienable rights uh, endowed by our Creator. I mean it, it. We sometimes you know stitch it on a on a cross stitch it on a pillow and treat it like a treat it like you know just a maxim but but there's something real here um you know Ali and I both write from a from a place of uh, Christian faith um and recognizing that Christian faith is part of a, a, a human fabric that that covers the world and we pick out some some examples of that but there's something very important I think in uh, that doesn't it's hard to get articulated in positive law, as Ali says, and, it, and it's hard to sometimes see what happens in a particular policy in a particular way. But, and I'm not very nostalgic because we fail at this throughout our history. But the, recognize the, the mutuality that we have with other human beings holds our fabric uh, together. And I, I don't want to make too huge of a leap, but right now we're um, we're we're recording this during the the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, we're recording this during the global uprising for racial justice in policing and law enforcement, uh, in in the wake of George Floyd's uh, murder, and and we see that we just strain uh, at the edges of our society right now, and and throughout our society right now to recognize that our own well-being is bound up in the well-being of everyone else. Um, you know, Dr. King famously says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And and what I think, um, and I, I, I will only speak for myself here, but I, I don't think I'm alone. Um, President Trump and his administration and his policies have demonstrated over and over and over again uh, that he is more than willing to sacrifice either intentionally or as a consequence, uh, the well-being uh, and the human dignity of populations that he just either does not care or is happy to ignore to advance um, to advance himself and to advance so-called uh, policy issues that that he wants to advance. I mean, uh, the child detention and family separation alarmed almost everyone uh even like hard hardline immigration enforcement folks uh whom i can respect to some extent uh, so long as they don't um you know pin up children and uh and find a different way to articulate that policy but but finding the the moral route which often we 
sort of uh, shy away from in these conversations, I think is just really important because uh, the rule of law can't hold up uh, without a recognition that it has to govern everyone it seeks to govern. And, and here, the Trump administration was more than willing to exclude thousands of people from the rule of law uh, and to act outside domestic and international law uh, in order to pursue a to, to pursue a claim and, and I think that that ultimately erodes uh, democracy and the rule of law itself well Jeff Ali thanks so much for coming on the show today um, I really enjoyed reading your paper and talking to you about it uh, I found it really troubling and the conversation we just had made it even more troubling. So I, I hope that we see some improvements in this area in the near future. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. And we join you in that hope. Just a 
lonely, little lonely orphan child.